Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why? Because they did not repent. Here are his words. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And grab a seat. Let me give you a couple hypotheticals. I don't think they're so hypothetical, actually. Um, what would you think of a groom standing up on the platform waiting for his bride to come down the aisle, and all of a sudden the music uh, goes up, everybody stands up, and there she is fully adorned, walking down the aisle towards the platform. What would you think of the groom if he yawned, checked his watch, and maybe scrolled the headlines? What would you think of that? Or scenario number two, what would you think of uh, a family who has a child who's been battling cancer, and at one point it seemed terminal, very, very, very bad. But uh, one day the, the child's been through some treatment, and the time comes for the doctor to give an update, and the doctor begins to tell the parents, I don't understand it. Your child is miraculously healed. There's no cancer there. And, 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 and the dad says, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I was just making an online order to Papa John's. I'm super hungry right now. Can you just hold off? I want to hear what you got to say, doc. But just give me a second because I'm ordering pizza. What would you think about that? Or how about this? How about somebody who is rescued from drowning, who never returns to tell the rescuer, thank you. Instead, they go get a slushie at 7-Eleven right away. Now, I think we would all agree in all three of these scenarios, something is massively wrong, right? Something, are you all with me? I thought these illustrations made sense, don't you? Something massively wrong with that kind of indifference. Well, today we're gonna talk about an indifference far more massively wrong. In fact, it's quite wicked. I wanna preach to you this morning on the evil of indifference to God. If, if we were to write a list of what we believe would be some of the worst or most egregious sins, I suspect we would say stuff like murder, right? Adultery and, and probably some other things I won't mention with the young kids around. Maybe uh, taking up two parking spots with one car. <laughs> um, but I'm pretty sure 
indifference, indifference to God wouldn't even crack that list, you know? But according to Jesus, indifference is not only part of the list, it's at the top of the list. You'll see that this morning as we look at the evil of indifference to God. We're going to jump in at verse 20. And what verse 20 gives us is basically a general indictment against three cities where most of the mighty works have been done. Let me read verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce that is to declare a justified indictment. That's what, that we, what it means to denounce. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done. He's indicting three cities where most of his works have been done. Now, the rest of the text, we'll talk about these cities. Let me briefly just give you a little bit of context on them. Verse 23, he talks about Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. We know from Matthew chapter 4 that after he kicked off his public ministry via his baptism and then the uh, temptation in the wilderness, Matthew 4 says that he, he, re, he went away from Nazareth to the region of Galilee to Capernaum by the sea. In other words, he set up shop in Capernaum. That's Capernaum, city number one. Verse 21, he talks about Chorazin. We don't know anything about Chorazin. The only time it appears in the Bible is here, but it was about two miles away from Jesus' adopted hometown of Capernaum. Then what's the third city? Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida, what makes this city significant, it was the hometown for four of the leading disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now, all three of these cities I just mentioned, they're all in the region of Galilee, and according to chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, and chapter 11, verse 20, this is where Jesus did how many of his miracles? How many of his mighty works? What does it say? Most. You get, catch that. Circle that. It's where he did most of his mighty works in these three cities. And we covered some of these miracles along the way, right? Several of them. What's also not insignificant is it's not like these miracles were done in some kind of vacuum. They were always accompanied by preaching and teaching. In other words, they were messianic signs. They were validating signs of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So to sum it up, to sum it up, in one word, the region of Galilee, and specifically the three cities of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, they received a whole lot of, what? What am I pointing at? Light, right? Most of his mighty works were done there, accompanied by preaching and teaching. And Jesus denounces these three cities in the region of Galilee because though they had all that light, they did not do what? Verse 20, what did they not do? They did not repent. I mean, sure, some people did, you know, Jack down the street and Sheila down that street, but, but most of the people, they just blew off the light, right? They blew it off, and for that reason, he offers this general indictment against them. Now, what we have is four more verses in this narrative, two couplets. <clears throat> The way we're going to walk it is you will find in each of these two couplets this threefold um, kind of um, stream 
There's a warning one, then there's an explanation two, and then there is a comparison, okay? So let's look at the verse couplet. Verse 21, Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Anybody know what a woe is? Sometimes we say, woe is me, you know? It's despair. It is a strong word of impending judgment, woe is. But it also has hues of, of despair, of, of lamenting, of pity, of anger, all of that in their doom. But even mercy. You say, how is mercy in a woe? Because when Jesus pronounces these woes, those cities had not yet received their judgment, right? So in other words, even in giving them the announcement of impending doom, that is itself an act of mercy. Why? Because there was still time and space to repent. What if that applied to you? What if you're not right with God? And he's telling you right now, time to get right with me. Because if not, there's judgment. That's a woe, and it's also coded in mercy. He's saying, come on, man. Come on, lady. Get right with me. And, and, and by the way, it really is coded in mercy, this woe, because the ne- we'll look at this next week. These words, these strong words, and they are strong, are followed by some of the warmest words of electing grace and of inviting grace. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But make no mistake, underneath the coding of mercy, it is a message of judgment of doom for those who do not respond. I was thinking of of, uh, this old Clint Eastwood movie. You have to appreciate those old Western movies. Not many people do, I don't think. Do you like Westerns? Have you heard of the movie A Fistful of Dollars? Oh, okay, good. That's what what a great congregation. Do you remember him chewing on that cigar and walking into town to take care of those guys that were wreaking havoc, and he turns, so the, he passes the coffin maker. Remember what he says to the coffin maker? He's chewing on that cigar, better make three. And he goes in, and he cleans up business. In fact, there's a fourth guy he has to, to, to put down, and so he tells the coffin maker on the way, uh, way out of the city, I'm sorry, it was four. It's a word of doom. Or maybe you think of uh, something a little bit more biblical than a fistful of dollars. Amos 4.12 Amos says, now these are serious words, prepare to meet your maker. You should take that seriously. You really ought to. Prepare to meet your maker. That's that's the warning. Now the explanation is this, latter part of verse 21. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Pastor Cleet was talking about the sackcloth last week weekend last Sunday. It was uh, basically made out of camel's hair, really coarse, almost like burlap. Somebody would wear it right against their skin during a time of mourning to just signify their sorrow and contrition. Ashes on the top of the head, the same thing. Basically, the idea here is plain. He's saying if Tyre and Sidon had received the same light that you did, Chorazin and Bethsaida, they would have repented long ago. Do you you see that explanation of why there's impending judgment? Because they rejected all that light. Even these other cities would have repented if they had the same light that you had. 
Which leads then to the comparison of verse 22. He says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, I have to tell you, that, that would have been mind-blowing for him to say that. Chorazin and, and, and Bethsaida, those are some good people, some good cities. It would have been like going back to the festival we were at last week. There were a few people who got super offended by the card that said, only bad people go to heaven. Remember that? One guy, I mean, it got pretty ugly there for a second. Only bad people go to heaven? What are you talking about? Does that mean good people, or only bad people go, go to heaven? Does that mean good people go to, uh, to hell? Remember he said that? Very offensive. Well, listen, put that on steroids. We already learned that Bethsaida and Chorazin were cities that had received much light. Fine, God-fearing people, upstanding Jewish citizens, conservative values. The kind of area you would want to raise your family in away from all that pagan madness. Tyre and Sidon, on the other hand, notoriously wicked places. You read about Baal worship and Asherah and all that, you know, all that crazy stuff of the Old Testament. That's where it went down in these twin cities north of Israel, the border of Israel. They epitomized God's people's enemies all through the Old Testament. They were a bit, you should just think probably of San Francisco and Las Vegas combined. And Jesus is saying, it will be better for these evil twin cities of Sidon and Tyre than for the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. I'm telling you, this would have been shocking. It would have been appalling. It would have been offensive, downright mind-blowing. That's the first couple. Are you with me? Second couplet, again, another warning. This time, uh, something a little bit different than a woe. Verse 23, he just says straight out, oh, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? <clears throat> nope. You will be brought down to Hades. In other words, do you, are you heaven bound? No, man. You're hell bound. You're going to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus did talk about hell, by the way. Here's one place right here. He tells this city, you are headed for hell. And then he gives the explanation. He says, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, if Sodom, Sodom, right, Sodom, had the same light as Capernaum, Jesus' hometown, they would still remain, they would have repented, and therefore they would have avoided the fire and brimstone storm that we all know came their way. So here's the comparison then in the second couplet, verse 23, verse 24, I'm sorry. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Listen, if the first comparison would have been mind-blowing, appalling, shocking, offensive, and all the rest, I, I don't have words to say how angry this probably made some of those people when they heard that. We know to this day, isn't Sodom code for a really bad city? What were the sins of Sodom? Hmm? It's in the name. We even derive the word, word sodomy. Un, un, 
repentant, rampant homosexuality. We went through this last night, going through the text as a family after dinner, and I, we got kids here. I just said, it's like when a, a guy wants to marry a guy or a gal wants to marry a gal. That's evil, right? And it was rampant there. But not just that. I'll just, again, we got kids here. I'll just say there was assault. Assault, right? You know what I'm talking about. Assault of the worst kind. And let's not overplay also while we hit those things, the, the sins of their materialism and their greed that in many ways undergirded all of that. If this was a wicked city in every way possible. And yet, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than all the good people of Capernaum. Wow. That was shocking. Now, again, the big idea is this. We're trying to look at the evil of indifference to God, especially when you've received so much light. And so now, I want to turn the corner, I want to make six applications, okay? And the first application is really just emphasizing the big idea of this text and message anyway. I want us to see, first of all, the indifference, that indifference to God is exceedingly evil. Why do you think indifference to God is so evil? Why does he put it at the top of the list? Why do you think? Because the indifference to God spurns the grace of God. And it is rooted in the very thing that led to the fall of Satan himself. It is rooted in pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. What's fascinating, look at verse 23 again. That phrase, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. That actually echoes a phrase taken directly out of Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. Where Babylon, remember Babylon in the Old Testament? Kind of evil place. Indicted for its rebellion against God. And even, you go all through scripture, does not Babylon stand for that which is anti-God? You go to Revelation 17, verse 5. This is what God says about Babylon. He calls her the mother of prostitutes, the mother of harlots. So the question you should ask is this. Wait a second. There's a disconnect going on for me. How is this lovely old conservative fishing village of Capernaum likened to this God-hating, standing for everything evil city, Babylon. What's the answer to that? Like Babylon, Capernaum basically said, I have no need of God. Well, I mean, on my terms, sure, but not like you say, I have no need of you. And that was massively, exponentially um, Guilt quadrupled because they had so much light. And did you, do you know there are two passages in the Old Testament that prophesied the pre-creation fall of Satan? Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. This is referring also to Lucifer, what caused him, this is very likely, I should say, referring to Lucifer and what caused him to fall. His arrogant self-sufficiency spurning God's glory for his glory. See, nothing, nothing, it's quiet in here. Nothing is more evil than rejecting the reality of our sin. And the only remedy in the cross of Christ, especially when that person has received so, 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 so much light. God warns people of that all through the Bible. 
Josiah in 2 Kings 14, he says that the great sin of Israel was not, was not going after Baal, and that was bad, right? That was really bad. Not going off after Asherah. He says in that chapter, the great sin of Israel was not listening to the words of this book when they were given this book. And for that, the wrath of God, he says, was kindled. Jesus, we'll see this in Matthew 22, will tell a story, a parable of a wedding invitation. And people won't come. They're indifferent to the grace of this invitation in this story. In fact, it says in verse 5 of Matthew 22, after they're invited to this great, invita- this great wedding, they paid no attention. That's it, there it is, right there, indifference, right? They paid no attention, and they went off and did their own thing. And Jesus tells us in that parable that invitation rejectors will be cast into outer fire and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said that, not me. In Luke 17, Jesus tells the story of Noah. In the days of Noah, by the way, Jesus actually believed in a literal worldwide flood. He believed in Noah and the ark and all of that. And he refers to when Noah built an ark, but what did people do? What did people say? Oh, thank you, Noah, for warning us. What did they do? They blew him off. They were indifferent. They had the revelation of a boat that they'd never seen being built in front of them. And it says they went on eating and drinking, and then the flood came. And he says, so will it be when the Son of Man comes again. I just want us to understand the evil of indifference to God. But let me tell you one thing that's more evil than our indifference to God. Indifference about our indifference to God. Because all of us can be indifferent sometimes, right? Let's just be honest. We all can. Prayed about it. We whittle God down and we take it lightly and the privileges of prayer and word and worship and witness. We just, no, no, no. That's because I got other things. We pay no attention. We do, right? But what should happen is we should then, we should be contrite. We should repent about that. We say, Lord, I am sorry for belittling your glory and the great privilege I have under all the light that you're giving me. Number one, indifference to God is exceedingly evil. Number two, do you know that the greater the light rejected will be the greater the judgment received? The greater the light rejected the greater the judgment received. Listen, just as heaven is going to be heaven for everyone who's there, but there will be varying degrees of of, of joy and blessedness, hell is going to be hell for everyone there, but for some, it will be more tolerable, Jesus taught, than others. There are degrees of joy in heaven, and there are degrees of misery in hell, which reminds us Everything God does is good, right, and perfect, and just. He's perfect in his justice. And that, that, that's a warning. The greater the light rejected, the greater the judgment received reminds us, do not be indifferent about the evil of your indifference to God. Number three, God doesn't owe anyone any more light than they already have. I gotta hit that. God was not wrong in giving Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum more light. And he wasn't wrong in giving Tyre and Sidon and Sodom 
less light. Why? Why, Why would you say that? Why would you say that, Mike? Because we're responsible to, re, to, to respond to the light that we already have. And I want to tell you, every human being who has ever existed, whoever will exist, will always get three kinds of light, which is enough to render us guilty before an almighty and holy God. I want you to turn over to Romans for this one. I want you to turn over to Romans. You turn to your right, Matthew, okay? You go through all the Gospels, you get to Acts, and you get to Romans. I want you to look at Romans chapter 2. And Romans chapter 2 tells us that there's three kinds of light that every human inherently receives. You guys there? First of all, there is the light of creation. Let me just read it as it is. Verse 18. For the wrath of God, Romans 1 here actually, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do with the truth? Push it down, like you're, like you're swimming in a pool and you're pushing down those floaties. It, take, it takes effort to do that, right? Because they want to come up. No, the, the light's up there, we push it down. Who suppress the truth. Well, what's the truth specifically they suppress? Four, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, you would never walk into this building and say, oh, all of this just kind of accidentally happened, right? You know that there would be a designer behind the chairs being here and technology up there and all that you have here. To say you're suppressing the truth when you say it just happened, because that's not what happens anywhere else in the world or in life. Saying it just happened is like saying a tornado ripped through a junkyard and out the other end came a fully armed F-18. That's not how it works. Thus, he says, for although they knew God, that is, he existed, right, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So first of all, there is the light of creation that every human has. You have it. We all have it. Then you, second of all, have the light of conscience. Skip over to chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. He says... For when the Gentiles, chapter 2, verse 14, that would be non-Jews, people who were not given the Torah and the Old Testament writings. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while they're what? Conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying we have a a God-given conscience. That's why in societies where they don't have the Ten Commandments, they come up with something like that, don't they? Hey, don't steal my stuff. I won't steal your stuff. You shouldn't covet, and all this and that. In other words, what an atheist wants to 
argue right and wrong based on an absolute standard. They're actually borrowing from a Christian worldview. Conscience, which God has given us. We have the light of creation. We have the light of conscience. But there's another, it's not a C, it's a K, but same sound. There is the light of God's kindness. How kind has God been to you? Your, your, your clothes, right? You got some food in your bellies. Are you going to put some food in your bellies? You got some interest. You got family. You, 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 there's so much we can give God thanks for. Now, look at, look at what it says about God's kindness. And the fact that he's withholding his judgment on you and you haven't yet turned to Christ. Look at, look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Be careful. He says, or do you, verse 4, chapter 2, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and, po- and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Some strong stuff, isn't it? God's kindness here specifically, it's the kindness of his holding back his judgment, but I think also we can just open it up to his kindness to you altogether, giving you life and breath. And I believe that the more kindness we receive, the more that doesn't turn us to Christ, right? That we take God's goodies, but we don't worship the God. I believe the more kindness comes in, swells like a balloon that's gonna break, more and more of his wrath that's over our head. So you have, you have the light of creation, you have the light of conscience, and you have the light of all the kindness that comes from the hand of God in your life. And the scripture makes it clear that with that light alone, creation, conscience, and kindness, that light alone is enough to to cause you to say, I need God in my life, to turn to God. And Jeremiah, don't be overly systematic in your theology. Jeremiah 29, 13 says that if you seek God with all your heart, you'll find him. He'll reveal himself to you. He will. That's what scripture says. So God doesn't owe anyone any more light because we already have tons of light. Creation, conscience, and kindness. And that enough should cause us to turn to God. And if we did that, he would reveal himself in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. What's more, even apart from that threefold uh, light that I talked about, most people have received a lot more light than that. Let's just be honest, right? Take Chorazin. This is an illustration. What do we know about Chorazin? What did I say by way of introduction? Nothing except this verse. And this verse says, Chorazin was one of the three cities where Jesus did most of his works. We wouldn't even know that. We're not right here. And most people have received a whole lot more light than they realize. And by the way, the more light we have, the more responsibility we have. Do not be evil about your indifference to God. I have three more applications real quick. Do you know that those who appear the most religious can be the most hard-hearted of all? Did you know that? I think this, this, these words illustrate that, right? Capernaum, Tyra, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. But, but how, do, how do the Sadducees or the Pharisees and the scribes, how do they respond to Jesus through the Gospels in the main? 
You have some outstanding exceptions like Nicodemus. But how do the people, these religious people in the main, respond? They, they want an end. They spurn the grace of God rooted in self-sufficiency. Now, there is an immediate application here for a person raised in a Christian home. There's a lot of light you receive in that most people in the world won't. There is a strong warning for someone who's been in church a lot, specifically a church that preaches the gospel of any denomination. There's a strong warning for people raised in a, in a culture where there is access to Bibles, right? You can, you can download podcasts. You can listen to sermons. You can watch sermons. There's Bible resource study, commentary, et cetera, materials ad nauseum all around, right? There is much, much light. Jesus is making the point that those blessed with the most light and do not respond will be the most damned. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? That's sobering. And further, I want to add to that. We live in a time in which many are seeing the craziness of, of progressivism, progressivism and wokeness and all that stuff, yet, yet, listen to me, are simply running to conservative values and not Christ himself. Listen, having views saner than mainstream culture will not save you. Only recognizing your inherent sinful condition and trusting in the one who died on the cross and rose again for you. Be careful, you're not guilty of what Stanley Hauerweis, an ethicist and theologian, calls the normal perversity of disbelief in Jesus. They say, oh, I don't, I don't share the perversity of Sodom. Oh, I don't share the perversity of Tyre and, and all the rest. Listen to what he says. Of the citizens of Capernaum, for example. He said, quote, like most normal people in the world, they were not guilty of notorious crimes or anything particularly offensive, like genocide, ethnic cleansing, or the sin of sodomy. Here you have the normal perversity of disbelief in Jesus. Paganism certainly blinds people to the grace of God, but so can religiosity. Here you have the people that voted right or whatever was you, you would put in that category, utterly damned for their rejection of the grace of God. Do not be indifferent about your indifference to God. Number five. Warning about future judgment is Christ-like and compassionate. We know the illustration, the house is on fire, and you go and tell the person, hey, your house is on fire, you probably should get out. You're not going to be thinking, oh, that's mean and hateful and spiteful and all that, like that was actually an act of compassion because they would have burned down. How much more the, the wrath of God, right? And you know, Christians often say, we really just want to talk about the love of God and, and all that kind of stuff. And something in us says, yeah, that's right, because I don't want to sound hateful or different or alarmist or weird. We fight that, and that's why we need to be reminded, as we are here, that out of compassion, the most compassionate one who ever walked the earth, the one who saw sheep as without shepherds, splachnizomai, mercy in his bowels, he warned people of judgment to come. Those woes are coded in mercy, right? 
And he uses something called the very solemn formula. It really comes out in the King James where you ever read, verily, verily, I say unto you. Well, that's what you have right here. He says, but I tell you, verse 22, but I tell you, verse 24, he's saying, this is just really serious stuff. I want to invite you to join a challenge I gave myself last Monday and actually be willing in the gospel conversations I'm having to talk to people about the coming judgment of God. So I gave myself this challenge. I only did it once this week, so it's not like I killed it, trust me. And that was just yesterday in the gym, in the sauna. But why not just say something like this? Intentionally warn people in in the context of sharing the gospel. Do you know, my friend, that Jesus himself, so you can put it on Jesus, okay? That Jesus himself warned that if you do not turn from him, you will perish forever you will suffer the endless judgment of God. The scripture calls it hell, wrath, various, various descriptions. Those are Jesus' words, right? Those are Jesus' words. And let me just encourage you to do that. Warning about future judgment is Christ-like and compassionate. And finally, sixth of all, we share a corporate responsibility to respond to light. What do I mean by corporate responsibility? All of us, together. Is he talking to individuals Yes and no, but what, what, what's the face of who he's talking to in these, in these chapters? He's talking to cities. When a society hardens their heart, there is a systemic generational impact on that. I think we've talked about the sexual revolution. But, but I want to go from the larger unit of society to the smaller society of family. We have a lot of families here. Everybody's part of a family of some sort. You do not want to be a Christian home in which people just go through the motions and there's no real demonstrative passion for God. And the reason is, well, I can set up a lot of things, hypocrisy included, but ultimately because we're, we're all recovering hypocrites. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why we need to repent and all that. Ultimately because love for God and trusting God at the end of the day is much more caught than it is taught. And we want to be families where there is a genuine pursuit and love for God. May we respond to the light and reflect it back with trust and love for our God. I don't know how this came across this morning. I've felt a little bit discombobulated, honestly, uh, but I do know this. Just as it was kind of weird for that groom to stand up there in that hypothetical, just yawning and checking his watch, and totally out of place for a guy hearing that his daughter has been cured from leukemia, and he wants to order pizza, and the person rescuing is more concerned about what flavor they got rescued, what flavor slushy they're ordering than thanking the person. How much more evil is it for us to spurn the one who said, come to me, all who are weary laden and heavy, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not Perish, but have everlasting life.